The reality is, uh, when it comes to being right and being wrong, uh, I would imagine every single one of us in here right now is a little bit both of those. Uh, there are probably some things that you believe and you're right about those things. And there are probably some things that you believe that you're wrong about. And it might be, uh, you know, not, nothing overly important. It might be something very important. But anytime you've, uh, like, sat down with a couple who's been married 60 years and they were both telling you a story, something interesting happens. It's about 100% of the time. They will be telling the same story about the same event and have very different memories of what happens. And often we'll be like, no, that wasn't a Tuesday. Yes, it was a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday at 7 o'clock. I know because I was leaving work. You weren't even in the city at that time. Anyway, so it's like that type of thing happens a lot. And uh, some of those types of things, you know, I don't think either one of them is trying to be dishonest. But that happens. It happens when me and my wife tell stories. It happens all the time where people are so sure that their memory of something is right and they got it wrong. Uh, I bet even on some, uh, some more important things like, uh, like uh, maybe a math question or maybe a history question. Maybe when you're in school and you're taking a test and you think, oh, I thought I got that one right. And you come to find out you got it wrong and you think, man, I, what, did I, what did I do wrong there? Uh, there, were, there were times I remember getting a question wrong and then looking in my notes and I was really sure I got it right because I wrote exactly what I had in my notes. Apparently I wrote something wrong in my notes. Uh, and so like there are times when you can feel really right and be wrong. And what should you do in those situations? Well, changing your mind is probably a pretty good idea. You know, when, when you come to realize, oh, I've been wrong about something, I should change and now do the right thing or now think and say the right thing. Um, one thing that's interesting about that is uh, in some areas of our life, that's okay. But one thing that can like kill a politician is uh, if they have had this stance for a long time and then all of a sudden they change to this stance, that, that could kill their credibility or their, because all of a sudden they're not oh, what a, what a humble and honest person that he was able to have introspection and, and come to, to realize that he, he could challenge his own beliefs and come to understand something greater. No, we only say that if he switches to agree with us. If he switches to disagree with us, then he's a flip-flopper and he has no integrity and he just says whatever he wants to say as the winds of time change. And, and, uh, and so changing our minds about something, uh, we could see it as a good thing or we could see it as a bad thing. But for Christianity, for anyone to become a Christian, um, it's actually an essential thing. Changing your mind is essential to becoming a Christian. That's actually a pretty literal definition of the word repentance. It's a change of mind. Uh, repentance is when you're living or believing or going one direction and you have a, a metanoia, a change of mind, and now you're going to go in another direction. And specifically, it's the direction about the lordship of Jesus in your life and in living a life of faithfulness and obedience to him. Repentance is not necessarily the same as changing all of your actions. Not to say that that shouldn't follow or especially sinful actions, but sometimes that takes time. Sometimes that's, you know, you pass the test sometimes and fail the test sometimes. Sometimes there's ups and downs. But it's a change of mindset that says, I'm going to live in a different direction now. So like someone who is an addict or something, and they decide, I want to become a follower of Jesus, and they change their attitude and mind and they want to go in that direction, they might occasionally still, 
give in to that addiction. And hopefully it becomes a struggle for them as they try to change the direction of their life to where their actions are now in conformity uh, to their mindset and, and to their will. But, but sometimes your actions will change quickly, sometimes it won't, but it's that change of mindset that says, I'm going to live in this way now. That's what repentance is. And that's, that's an essential prerequisite to becoming a follower of Jesus. A change of mind, and a change which, which manifests itself in how we live and, and what we believe and what we say and what we do. I want to read a, a parable in Matthew chapter 21, and it's about a change of mind. It's about a really important change of mind, and it's about a change of mind that ultimately leads uh, one person who looks radically disobedient to actually being the obedient person, and the other person who looks really, really obedient you end up finding out they're actually the disobedient one. Um, it's a parable that reminds us that looks can be deceiving. And so in Matthew 21, I'll read it, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it and talk about some of the, the context that builds up to it and maybe some important things that we can learn from it. But it's in Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to read verses uh, 28 through 31. Matthew 21, 28 through 31. It's the words of Jesus speaking to the chief priests and the elders of the, of the temple. And he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And the son answered, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it, and he went. The man came to a second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Well, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. That's quite a shift right there, that final sentence all of a sudden. Jesus goes from like making a point to saying something radically offensive to the people who are going to be standing there listening to him. We'll talk about that shift here in just a second and what happens there, but think about this passage for a second. You have a father with two sons. I, I, this is one that I feel like I actually fit into the situation pretty well. I'm, I'm a father of two sons, and, and I, have, uh, I have had experience of telling them to do something, and I've gotten a yes, sir, and I've gotten a no, <laughs> and, uh, and i got to tell you, I don't like the no, uh, but what happens here is the one who says no looks like the defiant, disobedient son. And yet at the end of the parable, he's actually the one who obeys. And the one who says, yes, sir, he looks like the good son who will do whatever you ask. He looks like that good, sweet, obedient child, but he's actually the one who, upon further investigation, isn't quite as righteous as he looks. It's a reminder to us that appearances can be deceiving. In fact, we talked this morning about uh, a time when Jesus went and he was dining with tax collectors and with sinners. And the Pharisees, the ones who looked so righteous, were condemning Jesus because he looked so unrighteous, because he was with people who looked so unrighteous. And Jesus reminds us that his mission and purpose isn't always to look the most righteous. It's to be a physician who actually brings about healing to people. And if you're going to bring about healing, sometimes you have to get in the muck and the grime and the dirt. Sometimes you have to get and intermingle with the unrighteous in order to heal them. And so Jesus and those who were with him, his reputation suffered. He didn't always look the most righteous from an outward appearance, even though he was righteous. And the people that he was with, surprisingly, they're the ones who ended up heeding the call of Jesus. 
They're the ones who, when Jesus called them, uh, they answered and responded positively. Yet when Jesus would call the Pharisees, very often they would not. And so the people who looked the most righteous were sometimes the first to reject what Jesus had to say. And the people who looked like the least righteous, the, the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were the ones most likely to respond to the words of Jesus. And it's a reminder that things aren't always as they appear. And I think that's essential to having that like history of, of Matthew leading up to this point in your mind as you read this. I think even just paying attention to what happened earlier in Matthew 21 helps us set this passage in its context so that we can understand it a little bit better. Because Jesus has been doing quite a few things where the reality isn't really what your eye is going to grasp. The reality is something deeper than the appearance. In Matthew chapter 21, it begins with what we call the triumphal entry. Um, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he does so as a king. In fact, they're shouting out to him as a king. He's receiving a king's welcome. Uh, you know, if, if you uh, look at, uh, like, ancient writings or even ancient movies and things like that. Uh, movies about ancient times. Uh, you, I guess there aren't ancient movies. But anyway, uh, movies about ancient times. You'll see sometimes a king entering into a city, and maybe it's after a military victory, or he's entering home to take the palace or something. And there's a huge uh, parade and a, and, and a celebration as the city welcomes him in. If, if you uh, haven't watched those movies, if you've watched Aladdin, when Prince Ali is making his way into Agrabah, there's the big celebration and there's the big song and dance where the genie's doing all the singing and stuff. Well, you have that going on because they're welcoming royalty into their city. Well, you have something similar going on right here with Jesus being welcomed in as a king to Jerusalem. And they're even offering him messianic and kingly titles. They're saying things like in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in verse 5, a scripture is being fulfilled that says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He's a king. He's the son of David. He's the one who's restoring David's kingdom. But one of the things that's interesting about it is compare this entry to, like, say, uh, Caesar Augustus or Tiberius or a great emperor who is entering into a city. I mean, Jesus is on a, on a donkey, and Jesus, he has some crowds there, but it's it's nothing of like the grandeur and significance of someone who people would recognize as an actual king. Jesus is kind of like a kingish in some sense, they're thinking. But there's this idea that Matthew is, is presenting, and it's going to really come to a head at the cross when before Jesus is crucified, they'll put the purple robes on him, they'll put the royal scepter in his hand, and they'll put the crown of thorns on his head. But it's a crown of thorns rather than a crown of gold. And the purple is just to mock him over his beaten and bloodied and battered body. And there's no authority because the people are laughing and scoffing rather than listening to the one who's holding the royal scepter. And when it says king of the Jews, it's not an actual official title given him. It's an accusation of his crimes, not placed on a crown or in his throne room, but placed on a cross. The people to his right and to his left aren't royal officials or advisors to the king. They're criminals right along with him. Like... All of the imagery is the imagery of a king, yet it's all done in such a way that, well, it subverts what an actual king would think is due him. And it shows that people, while Jesus is the true king, not just even of the Jews, but the king of the world, he's seen as something like the appearance. You could walk right past that powerful kingdom moment and not even know that it's taking place. You could just laugh, scoff, go back home and eat your dinner. And, and you wouldn't even know that the world is changing forever right here. 
Because while it might not look like a true king, appearances can be deceiving. And he actually is the true king of the whole world. He's, the, he's God in flesh, the creator of the cosmos there in front of you. And you walk by, shake your head, laugh, and go back home. Like, appearances don't always meet the eye. Uh, appearances aren't always as they seem. Right after this triumphal entry where Jesus enters as a king, but the humblest of all kings, he then goes into the temple, and what does he do there? Well, there's priests there in their priestly robes, and the chief priests are going to be there, and you have the sacrifices taking place, you have animals, you have the buying and the selling and all that stuff, and what Jesus does is he goes in there, and he flips tables, and he stops the, the, uh, the, the buying and the selling and, and, and the temple proceedings, and then shortly after that, he leaves the temple, and what's the next thing he does? He sees a fig tree. And in uh, Matthew chapter 21, in verse uh, 19, it says, Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit on you. And at once the fig tree withered. And so Jesus sees a fig tree, and just like him entering the, the city, he's the true king, but he doesn't look like as great a king as maybe you could imagine. He goes to the temple where it looks like there's worship and praise and sacrifice and everything's taking place. You come to find out the temple isn't actually producing what God wants it to. You then look at the fig tree and it's covered in leaves and it looks like it's alive and well. And you come to find out it's not actually producing any fruit. In each of those three stories, the appearance isn't actually matching the reality. The appearance of Jesus entering the city, you might not realize that this is actually the king of the world who's entering the city. In the temple, you just looking at the temple think, wow, it's a big, magnificent building, and people are buying and selling, and people are bringing their animals there, and there's sacrifice, and there's priests, and there's all this, and you might not realize that the temple's actually out of season. And seeing that fig tree and seeing all the leaves on it, you might think this is a healthy fig tree, and maybe it is a healthy fig tree, but it's out of season right now, and so it's not producing any fruit. And so you become to find out it's kind of a, a worthless fig tree. And then it becomes a withered fig tree. And all of these are images of where what you see at first isn't actually the reality of the situation. Well, the story continues on. And guess what happens if you walk into the most important city uh, in the world, and to, to the Jews, and you walk into the most important building in the world, which is the temple, and you start flipping tables over and driving people out. What, what's going to happen? Well, the people who run that most important building in the most important city, the chief priests and the elders, they're going to have a problem with that, and they're probably going to uh, come to you and talk about it. Um, you know, I've, it's funny. I've, I have taught this passage before, and I have used the illustration very specifically like, it would be like going to D.C., which is the capital, and going to, like, the Capitol building there and storming in and flipping tables and things like that. And I was like, could you imagine what it would be like if someone did that? And then, like, we don't really have to imagine anymore. You know, we, that happened uh, last year, uh, and it's kind of been a big deal. Uh, but notice how that was kind of a big deal, right? People went in there, people flipped tables, and it's the most divisive thing that's ever happened. And a lot of people have radically different interpretations of those events, but here it is a year and a half later, and people are still talking talking about it. There's still criminal proceedings taking place. Like, there's so much, uh, so much hostility and opinion about what happened there. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a big deal when you do that. And Jesus went into the temple, and guess what? That's a big deal when you do that. And that's going to cause a whole lot of controversy. It's actually going to set the wheels in motion 
to be what brings about the crucifixion of Jesus. Because by doing so, those who run the temple are ultimately going to start plotting against him. They're going to be the ones who um, gather together. And uh, if you look at like chapter 26 and verse 3, so after Jesus enters Jerusalem in 21, he cleanses the temple. They start challenging him about cleansing the temple and his authority for doing that. They get into a number of arguments. He then predicts the ultimate destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 and has a couple of parables after that that lead into chapter 25. When he finishes those words in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 1, it says, when Jesus finished all these words, which include the predictions about the destruction of the temple, verse 3 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. So, like, what Jesus is doing now is leading to that moment right there. And so after he does that at the temple, if you look at chapter 21 and verse 23, Remember the chief priests and the elders? Those are the people we just saw in chapter 26 who were going to try to kill him. Well, this is when they confront Jesus about it. In chapter 20, uh, 21 and verse 23, it says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. This is chapter 21, verse 23. Uh, they came to him saying, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Like, they want to know... What gives you the right to come into our temple and start doing this? This is, this is like a criminal investigation here. Uh, you know, imagine the, 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 the scene in a movie where you have the dim light and the room with the table and the one chair and the person sitting there being interrogated and you have the good cop and the bad cop. Or, you know, like, this is an interrogation scene trying to figure out what Jesus has done and why he thinks that he can do that. Now, to readers of the Gospel of Matthew who've been reading this entire book— we know exactly where his authority comes from. It's his father's house. Uh, he is the son of God. The authority is, was announced from on high at the baptism of Jesus. The, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And this is, authority was announced on high at the transfiguration. That this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Like Jesus is the son of God whose authority comes from heaven. And so when the chief priests, when they look at Jesus, do appearances tell the whole story? No, they don't see that. They don't see someone standing before him who is the embodiment of the God of Israel. What they see is some Galilean rabbi who's a rebel who came into their temple and with no authority to do this, marched in and started flipping tables over. Like, appearances are not adding up at all here. And so they want to know, okay, you don't look like you have any authority to do this, so where do you get the big idea? And Jesus responds in verse 24 with a question uh, of his own that shows how much they care about appearances, even over and above truth. Uh, in verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will answer, uh, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And notice as they deliberate their answer to this, how much they care about appearances rather than how much they care about truth. Here's their, their, their internal discussion. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. So answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, 
So here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, we can't say he just made it up. John the Baptist just made it up. They, I, I think that is probably more in line with what they're thinking or hoping to be true. Because, because John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, and the temple is where they wanted people to go for forgiveness of sins, uh, if they say, look, the law of Moses, it doesn't say John's baptism is how you receive forgiveness. It has this whole temple sacrifice system. It has this whole priestly system, which we are, uh, where you go to the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, but that's not where you go. You go to John, all of a sudden, they are like rendering themselves useless uh, in Israel. And they're saying the temple is no longer serving a purpose, kind of like a fig tree that's not producing any figs. Like if they say John's baptism is where you go for forgiveness, then they lose authority. And I don't want to say that. So, so they don't want to say that it's from heaven uh, because then the people would not see them as useful anymore and, and necessary. But if they say it's from men, they're afraid because so many of the people went to John for baptism and they regard him as a prophet. And so like, if they say, well, it's from heaven, then all of a sudden the people won't listen to them because why would I need to listen to you if I can get forgiveness of sins from John? But if they say, well, John, he was a false prophet, then all of a sudden the people are going to walk away saying, no, he's not, and you're wrong. And it's like they lose the people either way. And notice how little that answer has to do with what they actually think is true and what they actually believe to be the right answer. It's about what will people think and what will give us the most authority. What, what is the proper appearance? Uh, what, what do we want people to see when they look at us? And so they don't know how to answer, and so they don't answer. And so Jesus doesn't answer. But everything we've seen so far in Matthew 21, it deals so much with like appearances, and how so often they can be deceiving. And that's when Jesus, in the middle of this discussion with the chief priests and scribes, so when you get to verse 28, that's when he tells the parable about the two sons. And it's right in the middle of this conversation about like John's baptism and the temple and uh, the authority of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus got his authority to go into the temple and throw tables from heaven. And that's the same place where John got his authority to baptize. Like the answer to the question about John is the answer to the question about Jesus's authority. And so if they will give an honest look at the life in the works of Jesus and give an honest answer, they'll have the answer to their question. He does answer it by saying John's baptism. It's, the authority comes from the same source. But when Jesus is in the middle of that conversation, he then switches to tell the story about the two sons. And it might at first seem somewhat irrelevant. Uh, and, and I've heard some people interpret this passage, and, and I don't think it's really the direction Jesus is going right here, as though like that first son represents maybe the, uh, the Gentiles who uh, had not been a part of the covenant. They're like the ones who said no, but then they're later going to become part of it. So they're going to be, they're going to eventually do what God wants, whereas the Jews were the ones who said yes to the covenant, but then they, they didn't. I don't think that, I mean, there's, I guess, some broad application maybe there, but I don't think that's where Jesus is going with this. Um, I think what Jesus is doing is he, it's the same thing we've been talking about. If you were to see these two sons talking to their father, and one of them is asked, will you go work in the field? And he says, no. He sure looks like the disobedient child who says no to God. And the other son, if you watch, and if you see, and his father says, go work in the field, and he says, yes, sir, I will go. He sure looks like a good obedient, he looks like the one who said yes to God. And at the same time, if you were to look 
in Israel. And you were to look at the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. If you were to look at the Pharisees, who we ran into earlier, even though they're not specifically right here in this scene, they look so much like the ones who say yes to God. They look like the ones who, when God has called them to a life of righteousness, they've answered yes, and they are living out that way. And if you look at the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, they just look like the ones who have said no to God. They look like the sons who, who when God gave them a job to do, they rejected it and they went after sin in their own way. But that's why Jesus, after talking about these two sons, one who looks like he says yes and the other who looks like he says no, you find out the one who looks like he says no is actually the obedient one. That's why he says in verse 31, Truly, I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. You have publicly said a yes, but your actions are clearly demonstrating a no. They look like they've said a no, but they're actually listening to what God has called them to do now. They're actually hearing the, when Jesus said earlier, way back in, in, in chapter 9, when Jesus said, I did not call the righteous but sinners, this is that passage being played out in this parable and in the story of, of this the prostitutes and tax collectors versus the chief priests one looks like a clear yes to God but their lives are showing a no one looks like a clear no to God but their lives are actually demonstrating a yes because they're they're changing they're repenting they're changing their mind like that son did the son said no but then it says afterward he regretted it and went that, he repented. That's, we started off this whole lesson talking about what, what is a change of mind? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, well, right here, it's kind of, one son says yes, and I don't know if he ever planned on going or if he was lying right when he said yes, but he doesn't end up acting upon it. But the other one says no, but he has the change of mind, and then he, he goes and does it. And that's why when you get to verse 32, you find out that this whole thing is still actually a discussion of John's baptism. And when he says in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. So John came bringing about righteousness, demonstrating righteousness and preaching righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. So it's like they said yes to God, but when it came to obeying what John said, it was a no. That's like they said yes to their father, but they didn't go work in the field. Whereas it looked like the prostitutes and, and the, the tax collectors had said no to God, but when opportunity came to obey, they took advantage of it. They were forgiven. They were baptized. They, did the, they heeded the preaching of repentance and baptism by John. And so you actually see here that roles have been reversed and appearances aren't quite what they seem. And so when Jesus says that, um, it is interesting to me a couple of things about it, but one of the things that's fascinating is the group that he mentions, tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, he could have just said kind of a vague sinners or something like that, but he chooses two rather distinct groups that are surprisingly as different from one another as you could imagine two different groups of sinners being. Um, like when you think about tax collectors and prostitutes, there's a good chance that the prostitutes are among the people who don't like the tax collectors, which is pretty much everyone, and tax collectors probably look down on the prostitutes. They are 
polar opposites in a lot of ways. Usually tax collectors will be men and prostitutes are going to be women. Usually the tax collectors are going to be pretty wealthy and rich. And usually the prostitutes are going to be pretty destitute and just trying to survive. Usually the tax collectors are going to be people who have been oppressors of others. They've gotten rich by cheating and manipulating and taking advantage of others. A lot of times the prostitutes are those who have been oppressed and who have been taken advantage of to where they find this is their only way to survive now. It's not usually something that, that like someone aspires to. It's something that someone's forced into because of terrible life circumstances. And so you have these two very vastly different groups of sinners who Jesus, I, I wonder if it's kind of like a way of saying, uh, from A to Z, you know, sinners from this all end all the way to this end will be welcomed to the kingdom before you. I think a similar thing is done sometimes with like when, uh, when James talks about true and undefiled religion being to visit the orphans and the widows. I don't think he's saying only care for orphans and widows. I think what he's saying is orphans are pretty much your youngest destitute people and the widows are going to be your oldest category. And it's from A to Z. It's from beginning to end. The people who are in need, those are who you look out for. And orphans and widows becomes an idiom, an idiomatic way of, of saying that. I think you have a similar thing going on right here where it's not just tax collectors and prostitutes. It's probably other sinners as well. But that's a way of saying like the full range of sinners that you will look down on because you think they've rejected God. And yet they've gone out to John, they've listened to his word, they've repented and been baptized. Those are the people who are entering the kingdom. And you, who sit in your very nice robes, who have never mingled with the sinful realm of society, who have stood in the beautiful and fancy and wealthy temple, who have offered all of these sacrifices, who have said long prayers, who have done all of these things, who look so religious, you're like that son who says yes to God. And then when it comes time to obey, you walk the other way. Whereas it's these other ones who look like they've said no to God. Yet when they actually have the opportunity to obey, they do it. it. It's kind of like what Jesus said, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. Uh, Lord, Lord's a way of saying yes. <laughs> yes, you're my Lord. Not necessarily that they were calling Jesus Lord, but they are in essence trying, living a life that shows an aff affirmative answer to God. He's saying not everyone who says that actually enters into the kingdom. It's the people, even if they look like they've said no, who actually end up doing the will of the Father. When it comes to seeing others around us, recognize that looks don't always meet uh, the eye. Um, and appearances can be deceiving. And sometimes the people who you think, oh, they've, they've lived an entire life of rebellion against God, there's no way they'd hear. Sometimes they are the most hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Sometimes it's the people who have had so little righteousness who crave it the most. And sometimes it's those people who we might think look like they would be the picture-perfect Christian to have come here are sometimes the ones who maybe pride, arrogance, maybe attachments to this world, maybe it's just uh, the lack of humility, will be the least likely to actually come and submit to the lordship of Jesus. So don't prejudge based on appearances. That's why Jesus will go to the, and dine with tax collectors and sinners. Sometimes he found a more ready audience among them than even the, those who looked like they were saying yes to God their whole lives. Uh, I think we can sometimes 
I think there's a couple of lessons that we should just keep in mind as we, as we bring it to a close. But one of them is we may have said uh, no to God in our lives. Um, but just like that first son, saying no to God doesn't have to be your answer forever and always. Uh, no matter what you've done, no matter where you find yourself on that, you know, uh, that chart of sinners, there is opportunity to say yes, and that's actually what God ends up caring about. Not so much your initial answer, but what you then go and do. What you do matters. In fact, what you do is often a better uh, demonstration of your answer than the words that you say. And so, yes, say the right words, but now is your opportunity to do the right thing. As you leave this place and as you go throughout your daily life, that's your opportunity to do the right thing. And so if there's anyone here this evening who would like to get your life right with God, would like to give him a yes, would like to live in accordance with that yes, uh, we pray that you would let that be known, that you would come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.